director Gabriel Stelian Shanks, and welcome to the Drama League's In Conversation, the digital video and podcast series featuring some of the world's most renowned and noteworthy stage directors. To see more, you can visit dramaleague.org and click on Digital Series for our video episodes, or simply search for the Drama League wherever you find your podcasts. We're recording this on April 10th, 2020, in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic. And I'm pleased to tell you that all of the artists featured in this series during this time are donating their energy, enthusiasm, and creativity to help us raise funds for directors suffering during this time. So if you enjoyed today's episode and you wanna help us in that effort, you can donate to our emergency relief fund and artist support programs by visiting dramaleague.org. And if you're a director struggling during this time, please visit our COVID-19 resource area there where we've got information, grants, services, essential links, tons of opportunities for you. We want to be there for you in this time. Today, I'm very excited to sit down with Daniel Kramer, the American-born director and former artistic director of the English National Opera. Daniel's productions astound me. Uh, his production of Bent, starring Alan Cumming, uh, Prick Up Your Ears with Matt Lucas, Through the Leaves with Simon Callow, all transferred to the West End. From Shakespeare's Globe to the Gate Theater in Dublin, from Moscow to Melbourne, from Scotland to Slovakia, his career just spans not only continents, but actual cultures. I haven't even really begun to talk about his work, not only in theater, but in opera and in dance. Um, here in New York, his Wojciech, which was presented at St. Anne's Warehouse, garnered him a Drama Desk nomination. And his work has been seen or will be seen in the future at Harvard, Trinity Rep, and many more in the United States. I am especially pleased to note that Daniel is a proud alumnus of the Drama League Directors Project in our Hangar Directing Fellowship. Please welcome Daniel Kramer to In Conversation. Hi, Daniel. How are you? I'm great. Thank you for having me. It's very nice to be with you today. Let me start by saying, are, are you safe? Are you healthy? Where are you sitting through the pandemic? I am sitting in Providence, Rhode Island right now, where my partner has a lovely house and I'm never here. So I'm uh, as grateful as one can be for the pandemic and that I actually get to be um, home for four months. I was in Taiwan, reviving uh, my war requiem with Wolfgang Tillmans, and then I had a month in Vienna and Berlin and Dusseldorf and Geneva when it started to get quite scary. And actually my last night in Austria, I got very sick and got quarantined, but managed to be negative and just get home. And I've lost one production, Nixon in China, um, but I think it's been postponed to 2022. So, so far I'm sitting quite unscathed besides um, the huge grief that one feels inside and one sees, especially I think the children in, in my life as their entire livelihood has been kind of torn away from them. So I'm fine if very, you know, present in the moment. You know, it, it's so stirring to hear you talk because I know that you not only direct around the world, but you teach and share your knowledge with young directors everywhere. And I think when people talk to me about you and your work, they are struck by what I addressed in my introduction, which is just the global reach of your work and your ability to touch not only people around the world, but such different kinds of people. 
I wonder, what, was that always the plan? Did you always aspire to do that work? How did you get to London? What track, tell us how you got there. Well, I, I don't even know if there's a plan now. Perhaps, <laughs> perhaps just now, age 43, there's sort of a clarity of what I do want to pursue and what doesn't interest me any longer. Um, you know, I grew up on a sheep farm in Ohio. Um, the local theater community, the local high school theater changed my life. You know, I was that lost child who had too much imagination and too much energy and didn't fit in with the athletics department. It's a common story, really. Um, Northwestern, uh, for my undergraduate education, was truly at that moment in time, I think one of the greatest theater schools in America. And the philosophy that the teachers gave us, really that all art must question the political, religious, and cultural institutions of our time, um, was such a thorough, incredible intellectual and practical education and then going straight from that to the drama league getting exposed to new york city and almost immediately um just realizing that i didn't gel with new york as a place for my voice to necessarily flourish and then pursuing graduate studies in london and italy for three years on an incredible grant from the walton foundation i did immediately see with mentors such as peter brook and simon mcburney that Europe was a place in particular where my absolute passion that my art, not everyone's art, but my art was able to really question political institutions and my misunderstandings of reality, to quote Arthur Miller, in the culture around me, um, that Europe was a much bigger place for that. And, you know, the thing about European theater that I think we don't, most Americans don't understand is that, you know, most European countries are the size of a state with the funding of a federal government behind them. There's just so much more opportunity for theater and opera mm -hmm. and dance to be supported. Imagine, you know, if Cleveland, um, Akron, Columbus, and Cincinnati, I speak of my home state because that's the state I know best, all had subsidized theaters. Do you know that would so change the ethos of Ohio and the sort of art that Ohioans could create? And so when you get to Europe and you realize how much more opportunity there is to um, get experience, to climb the ladder, and then once you do sort of get established on the ladder to have your work going around, it's just a whole other, um, it's a whole other game over there. And in terms of cultural dialogue, uh, you know, my mother was a, a Spanish teacher. My father was a headmaster. Uh, uh, principal at the local middle school and foreign cultures and education you know they're in my blood and I just as an American being an exchange student when I was a junior I had such a and I think being a gay man in a very homophobic fundamentalist Christian town I guess my art you know, I really, I remember waking up at Northwestern and my professor's kind of going, are you really just going to go into musical theater as a performer and make everyone laugh? Because I was really into being a comedian. Or are you going to follow this other part of yourself which has so much to say? And my professors really made me choose a path and, and the harder path for me to make sure that I used my voice to try to, you know, it was right when Angels in America was taking the world over to use my art to ask difficult questions of the world around me, which doesn't always make me popular. <laughs>
Well, I mean, popularity or not, I think what you're describing, we have a international exchange program and we've sent uh, dozens, maybe even hundreds now of directors to Eastern Europe, to Romania and Poland and Bulgaria and Germany. And, and they all, what you're saying echoes back from them that the idea of a subsidized theater community changes the conversation directors can have, changes the conversation audiences can have um, in really exciting ways. Was it hard as an American to break into that system or did, were there specific challenges or, or what has been joyous about that for you as, um, as someone not born in Europe? You know, it, it's a wonderful question. And uh, it, I, you can see I'm a bit verbose as per my American roots. I'll try to give a more concise answer. Mainly it's joy, you know, working in Europe, the European Union, uh, they crave international voices. You know, the German theater, I've just been hired. I'm the first American to be hired at a major German playhouse next autumn. I can't say what it is technically yet, but they are just opening the doors to international directors right now. They want international voices. They want to be part of the global community um, as a sort of, I think, reaction to Brexit and Trump, where it feels like nationalism and white supremacy um, and closing people's doors and xenophobia seem to be taking over and having a resurgence. There's just such open doors, I feel, in Europe and in the East. I mean, the welcome map that I have gotten in Taiwan, in China, in Japan, um, is incredible and second to none. And their desire for cross-cultural exchange and dialogue is incredible. Weirdly, having moved to London in 2000, intentionally on July 4th, Independence Day. Um, <laughs> I, the first, you know, kind of the first four years I was there, it didn't matter. I mean, I was in grad school and then I did my first play through the leaves of Simon Callow and Ann Mitchell and people were just excited. I did Wojciech at the gate. People were just excited. Oh, who's this young, you know, really kind of physical theater, image-based director? Ooh, cool, world art. And then suddenly around 2008, the war on terror, I noticed, as did many of my um, fellow artists abroad, that people started saying, you know, oh, hi, what's your name? Where are you from? National identity started to become a bigger thing. And then suddenly, when I went back to England, really kind of five years ago, I was suddenly the American, which I was never for bent for, for the first 10 years that I was in London. I was theirs. I think they took real ownership of me. I have a passport. But Something really shifted in the global identity um, in the last five years, I would say, and, and nationalism has become more of a thing. So I actually feel almost less welcome in England now and much more welcome in Europe, especially in the opera world, which is a smaller world, of course. Um, and I will say without any, uh, there's any negativity around this, but the place I feel least welcome is America. I, there aren't many American directors who would disagree with you, even those of us who are based here. So oh, that makes me that makes me feel so much better. Thank you. I belong. Well, Thank I, you. you know, I think it's important to do work here, but I also think it's hard not to feel that there is a little hostility toward the arts in this time. So it, you know, I uh, we hear and we affirm what you're saying with that. Wow. Well, thank you. Um, you also, um, how do I talk about this? In, in addition to working in such a range of places, you work in such a range of forms. Um, and your work in opera is 
perhaps even larger at this point than the work you do in theater. I'm curious if the, not only as you work in Taiwan, is, is there a change in the way you have to work from London or America? And does it change depending on the discipline? Um, directing opera is a very different experience than directing theater for those who have done both. I just wonder if, if you have to modulate inside these things at all. I, absolutely. Um, you know, I think when I started opera in 2008, um, I thought, no, I'm just, you know, it's, I'm a great, I'm, a, I'm telling great stories through theater that happen to be sung. It's sort of like musical theater. I, now, 12 years on, I would say absolutely not. Opera has its own incredible set of techniques and rules and craft that I've learned now, kind of reverse order. And I really now understand the statement of what it means to stage the music. And an opera performer, full stop, works outside in. They are counting. They are following a conductor. They are not obsessing about the birth of the syllable and why they say it. They know what syllable they're gonna sing. They know exactly where it has to be placed. They know when they're gonna sing it. Why comes out in week five. So I always think that theater is much more of an inside out process and you really get messy with the, with the, the, the artist from day one, with the round the table, the bookwork. You're instantly putting your blood on the table, their blood on the table. You're creating this psychological community often based on unpacking shared and individual trauma, slowly growing this beautiful, organic, raw, messy, bloody, beautiful thing outwards to finally have callous enough skin to show to the hypercritical press and loving, generous audiences. Whereas with opera, you're really starting with shape and form and floor pattern and um, spatial relationship and, and feng shui floor patterns and getting the beast on its feet. You've got to get 80 people on stage. You've got 35 seconds, go. Do you know, you just, ha it's, it's so much more technical. The third, what I would say is dance, of course, absolute most free. And I mean, dancers will do anything. They'll try anything. They, they, their body is, it's, it's just joy to me. I mean, dancers, you don't have to ask why, you don't have to tell them how to do it. You can really leave them with sensations and ideas and let them explore so much. So I find the most freedom in devising um, dance. I don't consider myself a choreographer, but a divisor with, with dancers. I love to work with dancers. Um, culturally, to wrap up, I, I mean, there's quite a, in the opera world, it's quite a regimented industry how we work. You know, English is the international language. People arrive knowing their music. They expect to be staged immediately into what they're doing. They kind of blossom just to opening night. The arc is quite clear. Um, but theater, of course, is very different. I mean, when I did Hamlet in Poland, I mean, on day one, I remember the artistic director right before I walked in to give my opening speech, he said, now, in Poland, they'll all give speeches that they'll be doing with the character in your production. And I thought, oh, oh, I wish someone had told me that. Um, so it's very, very individual and very different. And I think, in, in fact, the one thing, again, I don't know much about is American theater. Only through myth do I know a lot about American theater, but certainly British theater and German theater are very different culturally in how you approach those things. It, you know, what's fascinating <laughs> to listen to you because you have such a, a um, deep and nuanced and, and, and I almost want to say um, uh, romantic understanding of the way we make work. 
Um, I, you know, some of that springs out of you naturally as an artist. Um, but earlier when you mentioned Peter Brook and Simon McBurney, and I know you've worked with, you know, Richard Foreman and Trevor Nunn, and, you know, are there, what lessons did you pick up from those people that made you the artist you are today? How did, how did those mentors influence you? Wow, thank you. Well, you know, again, to go back to, I had such an amazing undergraduate education and the reading list that I began with from uh, Empty Space, you know, Grotowski's preface to Towards the Theatre is a, still a seminal 20 pages for every artist to memorize backwards and forwards. Harold Clerman on directing, it doesn't get better than that book. And Trevor Nunn embodied that book. Trevor Nunn, well, let me start with Richard because Richard was the first person that when I got to New York after the drama league, I moved to New York for a year and I assisted Richard on Bad Boy Nietzsche for three very sleepless months while waiting tables at two places to pay rent in Chelsea. Um, Richard taught me that is fundamentally an absolute poetic art form and that we must use every single medium of expression at our fingertips plastics costume design makeup design hair design sound design lighting design props set design every single element is a piece of clay as important as the actor's breath as important as the text to express the inexpressible and that's what I love about Richard Foreman's work is, you know, I remember seeing, um, I think the American title was Paradise Hotel. The night after my Drama League interview, I flew to New York for my Drama League interview, my senior year at Northwestern. I go to see this Richard Foreman show one night, The Lion King the next night. And I had no idea what happened to me in the Richard Foreman ontological theater. I remember Tony Torn kind of naked with his belly out, adorable, and a big feather headdress. Six months later, I was in the shower, still thinking about that show, and it hit me like a sledgehammer in the head what the entire show was about, how it was a metaphor for all of life, especially life in New York City. And that became a life goal for me, like Pina Bausch, too, that art is not necessarily something that you can cerebrally understand and give a standing ovation and then go out in the streets and have dinner and forget about it. That for me, this is very personal, great life-changing art haunts us like a like an earworm like like a like a hook in the soul and you think about it and it can't necessarily be understood on first second or third viewing but it's something that harmonizes or discords our electrons in their very in our very atoms of our body for months and months, if not years of reflection. Trevor was the exact opposite of that. And that was so intentional, like Trevor Nunn, like lame is. I mean, my, I mean, I'm so excited about Harry Potter and Hamilton because of one specific reason. They are recruiting the entire next generation of theater artists who will flock to New York City foolishly in 15 years and populate world theater from an American point of view. Cats, Phantom and Les Mis were that for my generation. They changed all of us somehow. Every, every kid I went to at Northwestern, whether they were like, you know, being radical performance artists or wanted, you know, to be in Les Mis on Broadway, we all started with Cats, Phantom and Les Mis. So the opportunity to assist Trevor Nunn on Hamlet in the West End at the Old Vic was, you know, 
I, I, I did everything in the world I could to get the job and then to become his associate, a woman in white. Trevor taught me, and this is, Trevor truly changed my life um, in a different way than Richard, but Trevor taught me process. Trevor taught me exactly how to put together a, a show, full stop. However commercial it is, however abstract it is, what do I need to have on stage at the end of week two? What do I have to have at the end of week four? When the producer sits down and when do I invite the producer into the room? What must the producer see in the first run? What must the marketing team see? What must I achieve by the third day of tech? And what must be ready and what should not be ready by the first preview? Unbelievable. And so important. So important. So important. And I don't know that... We only get it from assisting. Another thing I will say that Trevor said to me, which is like, you know, published all over the place is, he said, you can assist, you can assist, you can assist, but make a rule for yourself. Ev between every show that you assist, you have to direct a show. You must apply all the lessons you learned or that the director didn't do to a show in between. He says, as long as between every job you assist, you direct your own show, you'll be fine. And I think that's a great piece of advice for young directors. I think so too. It, I, I, so often when young directors are in the rehearsal room and they see this director, they have no practical ability to go experiment with those things. Okay. And so that okay. advice is, uh, I'm, I'm gonna steal that. I'm gonna use Good. that. It's, it's, and it, it's, really? I know with a couple of my kids, you know, I love to teach, um, it's really saved them because you know, when you get out in that real world, I did it for two years. I was an associate on a giant musical in the West, then I needed money. I yeah. just, you know, and, 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 but thank God I found a way of, yeah, making sure I could do my little fringe pub shows in between. Do you have artists today that inspire you the way that Richard and Trevor did, or in, in, in any of the world you're in, opera, theater, dance, are there, are there artists you go, that is changing who I am? Yeah, I mean, the number one living artist on earth for me personally is Bill Forsyth. I think that Bill, Bill, um, who's retired now, I think he lives on a farm in Vermont. Um, Bill created dance theater, dance, set design, sound design, lighting design. He's an auteur. Bill sees everything. Um, but really, Bill creates political meaning that blows my mind. His um, impressing the Tsar changed my life. Um, and I look to him as you know, the greatest living artist of my times that I've ever seen. Um, on a different scale, um, I love Trahal Harrell. Do you know Trahal's work? He's a choreographer. He did Maggie the Cat at Manchester International Festival last year. Um, he's, I don't know a lot about him, but I saw this dance piece that he did. He's an African-American choreographer and he just cut a language of contemporary um, RuPaul modern dance that blew my mind. I mean, he, and uh, so I love him and I would really love to play with him one day. And there's a female director in Australia, Adina Jacobs, who I think is the future of, of, of world theater. Um, I hired her at English National Opera. I just got her hired for a massive gig in Vienna. I think she is the most, when I see her work, I become a student again. I become a child. I know that I'm in the hands of a poet who is doing something that is so beyond what most of us conceive theater can do. The imagery is so striking, sometimes heart arresting, very dangerous. Some people get so enraged by her work, um, but she gives me 
such reason to go, I'm a student and I must keep learning and I can only find my voice deeper, truer, more radical, more bold. More bold. I, I can just imagine everyone who's watching this video online is now going to YouTube <laughs> to find these artists that may not have had an American presence yet, but desperately uh, want to know the artists you're talking about. Good. Um, I know you said earlier that you had one piece postponed and you have a piece you can't talk about yet. Um, I, I, one question that I'm really curious about is what haven't you done that you want to do? Uh, oh what's on your bucket list to do? Oh my gosh, well, that's such a long list. It's embarrassing. I mean, look, I, for the last um, 10 years, you know, I've, I haven't done as much work and, and I, I, I actually want to do less work. I really like doing one, maybe two pieces a year so that I can dream them. I love adapting every word, every piece that I do, love rewriting them so that I get to step into the shoes of why that syllable. Um, the myth that I have to complete before I pass is Prometheus, the third part of the trilogy. Of course, you know, uh, Prometheus Bound, and then Shelley wrote Prometheus Unbound, and I feel like my life mission is to write Prometheus Transfigures, which is very, my story. Um, and the story, I hope the story of uh, all of us understanding the myth of Prometheus and fire in our time, of course, a great myth for artists. Um, but in terms of like titles, um, I'm doing Peleus and Melisande next autumn, which I, in, a, in an incredible theater in, in the German speaking world, which is a play I've wanted to do for years. I love Maeterlinck. I love the symbolists. Um, I need to do Salome. I have to do Salome. I think it's a very important time um, story for now. Um, I must do a new death of a salesman. It's kind of set in an exploded Walmart um, about the contemporary working class family. Um, Electra is a very important myth to me. Most of my work in the last five years really centers around grief. And I believe that that's one of the best things my art can do is to help people grieve. Um, I think as a culture, my stepfather is an embalmer and I grew up with a lot of grief about my own father's death, but then because of my stepfather. And I think that we have as a nation, main, most cultures forgotten how to grieve. And I think a lot of the unprocessed trauma from World War I and World War II, Vietnam, the AIDS crisis, now this pandemic. I just think grief is such an important thing to help our audiences with. Um, we often go to the theater, how Prince told me, you know, to help people cry. And I think that's really important. So I'm very drawn to stories that have to do with grief. Grapes of Wrath is huge for me. I really need to do Grapes of Wrath. Um, Glass Menagerie, as you can see, I like the classics. I really like to work, my whole CD is the classics. I like to take the classic titles and reconstruct them, um, which is a term I prefer more than deconstruction, which tends to scare most Americans. Um, so, uh, and in terms of musicals, cause I, you know, I grew up on a sheep from in Ohio, basically Glee Club people, you know, we, we were doing Fiddler on the Roof and Oklahoma and South Pacific. Um, one day I must do Carousel on an empty stage with a revolve only. And oddly, I must do Greece. Okay. Yeah. I see. <laughs> um, I just want to say to your point about grief, I, I was just on a Zoom call with a number of artistic directors uh, two days ago, um, sort of trying to think about what we do next. When, when mm. theater comes back, what is it going to be? And there was a argument to be made that audiences will need our ability to bring joy um sort of 
counterpunctually <laughs> um, opposed to we are going to have to help them deal with a sadness unlike any they've had in their lifetime. Um, and so I, I just want to affirm that it is okay for people to grieve, and it is perhaps one of the most noble uh, things we as artists can help our fellow citizens process, um, because we aren't, uh, at least in this country in this time, I can't speak to the entire world, woefully unprepared for this moment, um, emotionally, psychologically, spiritually, um, and I hope our artists are going to, to confront that and uh, take up our role in, in that process. Um, Couldn't agree more. For me, uh, grief would be the number one priority, the grieving process, yeah. work, work that helps us grieve. And there can be, as the Irish um, um, probably have one of the strongest grieving processes on earth, joy is a huge part of the grieving process. It's a huge part of it, but it's part of the grieving process. Yeah, yeah. Do you think directing changes at all post-pandemic or will, will what we do look similar to what we've known before? I hear so many, uh, so many of us hoping that this moment in time will help wake us up to really view the financial system that rules our lives for what it is. Is this really the system that we want? Um, to ask the question, why do we elect people who abuse us, who insult us, who literally divide and conquer us? Why do we choose abusive leaders over caring leaders? I wish and hope those questions will be asked. Tony Kushner, please write the entire New York Times for a week, write every page. No. give us the new help, use your power, you know, it's not his duty at all, but we need someone of that scale. Um, my concern is the financial systems are so strong and have such a grasp and everyone's already wanting to get back to before as if they haven't heard that song from Ragtime, we can never go back to before. Um, very true. Uh, I fear not a lot will change. What does give me hope when I was, um, I did a quarter at Harvard. I love being a guest professor. I was at Harvard in 2016 for an autumn and I was teaching a course and doing dream play. And it was dream play opened three nights after Trump was elected. And my finals were two weeks after Trump was elected. And I watched my Harvard students. And by the way, Harvard has the most incredible undergraduate program for theater now. It is so amazing. And no, you do not have to have straight A's to get into Harvard. It is a total myth. All they want are young world leaders and they will take you if you're in the theater. Um, I love that education at Harvard, but I saw my kids in one month transform from maybe interesting, normal American theater artists who would do a really cool glass menagerie one day and might write a really cool realism kitchen sink play about issues to radical, interesting thinkers who I thought, there's the future of American theater. These kids mm. now have something to say. So what I think will happen is that there'll be a whole generation of artists, I pray and I'll do everything I can to encourage them, who will have so much to talk about now. And hopefully that will create an immediacy. I mean, you know, do I wish that the pandemic would help us reevaluate commercial theater over subsidized theater? and the somewhat imbalance of it. Yes, will that happen? I doubt it. People have, you know, the Broadway machine is a billion dollar industry, I imagine. Uh, and some of it is the best work, you know, I mean, 
there's Hamilton, which is awesome. And we want everyone on earth to see Hamilton. It has such important things to say. Not everything does. Not everything has to. We need entertainment as well as art. And sometimes the two can go hand in hand. But I don't know. I, 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 the idealist in me wants to say, yes, of course, it'll change and theater will become sacred space again. And the realist in me says, well, I think change will grow slowly. What I do hope happens is that we remember no matter how much incredible online archives there is and online work is created and Netflix and God bless Tiger King, which there were 30 more episodes of it at this point. Um, theater is fundamentally a group of people getting together in a room live. It's the one thing that defines us. So what I hope will happen if we have the Great Depression or not is that theater artists in Wadsworth, Ohio, in Versailles, Missouri, in Arkansas, in Kansas, in Idaho, will get seven, 10, 25, 200 people together in a town hall, in a church hall, in a school gymnasium, in a barn, and tell stories and create sacred space and share their emotions and help each other. The shaman around the fire passing the whiskey around, dancing out the absurdity, dancing out the rage, getting everyone to scream what they need to let out, Greek theater, Dionysus, getting everyone to cry, getting everyone to share, getting everyone to hold hands for all I care and sing Kumbaya. Whatever it takes, get your community back around the fire in sacred space and share community and share emotion. Yeah, I think that's the charge that everyone who's listening to your words right now, all of the directors who will come to this, we, we should all take that as our charge going forward. No matter what happens, that is what must be preserved. Um, I wanna thank you for being here today. We're almost out of time. I'm asking all directors one question because we have a lot of early career directors and young artists who uh, come to the Drama League for, for advice. So I'm wondering if there was one piece of advice that you could give now to your younger self, um, that young Daniel Kramer who is starting at Northwestern or just coming to New York, what, what do you wish you could s tell him? Don't take any job based on the size of the paycheck. Only take jobs where you know your voice, your truest voice, will not only be welcomed and desired, but absolutely supported to go as deep and as true and as honest as your voice can go. Do not take jobs based on the dream or need of money. Could not have said it better myself. Uh, Daniel, thank you so much for being here. Really appreciate it. I'm glad you're safe. It's great to see your face. You too. Go Drama League. <laughs>